0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church, St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, I I grew up in a Baptist church and I remember uh, we'd sing all the time, are you washed in the blood? In the soul cleansing blood of the lamb, are you your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? And I, you know, I I thought recently that must have sounded so weird to people who didn't grow up in church. You know, what in the world is that all about? I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. Um, If if you went to heaven today, what do you think you'd see? you know, maybe, I don't know, gold roads roads or mansions, or I don't know what you might think about, but uh, in Revelation, John had a vision, and he kind of went to heaven, and what he saw, he said in chapter 5, was, he said, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Just think about that. Uh, the Bible says that the at the heart of reality, and spiritual reality, there is a slain lamb. And what in the world does that mean? The first thing I think we might think is there's there's no other faith like that. And hopefully that makes you lean in a little bit uh, this morning. At my church, we've been going through the book of Exodus. And so that's kind of been on my heart, and my mind fresh. And so I figured we would, we would talk about that this morning and hear about the story of the lamb by looking at the story of uh, the Passover. And to kind of set the context of what's been going on, if it's been a while uh, since you've read the book of Exodus, or maybe you've you've never read it, uh, there's this family that's grown almost into a nation, right? Abraham's family, known as Israel, and they went down there. They were doing well when they got to to uh, Egypt years before, but now they've multiplied into many, many people, and they're in slavery. And they were enslaved pretty pretty harshly for well over 400 years uh, in Egypt. And you remember the story? God calls Moses. Maybe you, you you've never heard the story, but you may be familiar with Moses saying, "Let my what." People go. He goes to Pharaoh. He says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, No way. And what happens? It's followed up with a a plague, right? Something really bad that happens with flies and frogs and different things, right? There's nine of them. So nine times in a row, there's the same pattern. Moses goes to Pharaoh, Hey, let my people go. He says, No way. He says, Okay, fine. The plague's going to come. The plague comes. And Pharaoh says, Okay, I get it. This is really bad. Please stop the plague. I'll let them go. The plague stops, and Pharaoh hardens his heart again, or God hardens his heart, and so on. And it just repeats. But today, when we talk about the Passover, we get to the climax of this whole story. And it's the final plague. And really, Pharaoh's response to Moses, when when Moses said, let my people go, here's what Pharaoh said. Here's the question he asked. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Why should I do what he says? You know, why, why does he have any right in my life uh, to, to to do life according to his way? And I think deep in our hearts, we all ask that question. I think that's really the essence of just sin. It's like, who is the Lord that he has any place in my life? And really, there's no better way to answer that question than the Passover, this final plague, because in it we see that God is a God of, of justice, but He's also, thank God, a God of mercy, as we've been singing about and reading about this morning, and ultimately. The Bible shows us that the Passover is a picture of a, of a greater coming judgment, but also a greater mercy given in Christ. And so I'd like for us to, to read the story. I'd like to read the text. I've just chosen some passages from the narrative. Just keep in mind, kind of Old Testament, there's stories, narratives. So the text is a little bit longer than some of the shorter New Testament clips that we'd normally read. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning uh, as I read this. And I'll be reading some from Exodus 11 and then quite a bit from Exodus chapter 12. Okay. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he'll drive you away completely. Verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And then chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This is God's word. Thank you. You can be seated. So I want to look at four points. Um, look at this final plague uh, and, then, and how it shows us we owe a debt. Uh, and then look at the Lamb of God and then a feast um, that we're to keep. So if you look at that first um, verse in chapter 11, if your Bibles are open or maybe on your app or something like that, uh, there's that word plague in chapter 11, verse 1. And What's interesting, the Hebrew, that's the original language the Old Testament was written in, the word for plague is different there than every time plague had been said before in the book of Exodus. It shows really that there's a different intensity to this final tenth plague and really there's almost an irreversibility to it. All the other plagues could be turned back. Uh, but not this one. All the other plagues show that if, you know, Pharaoh, hey, if you don't operate life according to God's design, there's, there's a breakdown. Uh, but here, there's, it kind of ramps up to a new level. This is like a preview on just one night of what this full judgment will look like. And so in verses four through seven of chapter 11, just to recap the story, if you didn't catch it, we read it pretty quickly. Um, the Lord says at midnight, every firstborn will die. And that's a really big deal because in the ancient Near East, all the hopes of the family was, were, were in the firstborn. Uh, they were the heir of the family. And so as that firstborn went, so the family would go. And so the Lord's essentially saying to Egypt, for your sins, you know, your firstborn will represent all of you and I will take your firstborn son. Earlier in the book, in chapter 4, God called Israel his son, and if you remember, Pharaoh tried to kill Israel, tried to eliminate all the children and throw them in the Nile and all these things, but yet now God is showing he's really the only one who can give life and take away life, and it's it's a terrible scene, if I'm honest, with this story. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 6 says, there's wailing all throughout Egypt like there had never been before and there would never be again. And Pharaoh wakes up when, uh, when this happens at midnight, and he just tells Moses, get out. Like, seriously, this time, get out of here, you and all your people. And it, they, it says they literally pay them to get out. But obviously, it's at great cost at this point. And just reflecting on this text, I heard this story growing up, and I must have just rushed past it, you know, in Sunday school and things like that. But this is just really heavy. And it made me stop and ask as I prepared this was, who is the Lord? Who is the lord right um, you, you We're familiar with just maybe popular cultural portrayals of God, being a God just of sentimentality of full acceptance and you know no judgment and all these different things and i you can 't read this story and come away with that conclusion about who is the lord right this is This is a God who apparently takes sin very, very seriously, which is a reminder not to, to make God in our own image, not to project Him to be what we want Him to be like, but really to come to the Bible and say, you know, who is the Lord? What does it teach about who He is? And so it's, it's very sobering. But I want you to notice in this story that in the morning, really the death count is the same in every house in Egypt. And, and the, the Israelites' houses, the Egyptian houses, the, the Israelite houses, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, there's a dead something in every single house the next morning, the difference is it's either a dead son or a dead lamb, if you caught that in the story. Because God told Moses to turn around and tell Israel to kill a lamb and to sit down and have a meal and eat it. And in verse 7, he says, and put the blood on the door. In verse 13, you see, he says, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you and your son will live. The, the lamb will be your covering. So that Hebrew son would think something like, you know, I'm not dead because the lamb is dead. And so there's an interesting message here that I think we can rush past sometimes is that Israel is just as guilty as Egypt. Right? I mean, they 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 are in line for judgment too. They're not just innocent victims. God doesn't say, you know, you're special, you're set apart. I mean, no, there's no judgment for you. You know, it's only the bad guys that I'm going to get. But everybody... Deserves this. Like no one can stand at midnight when God comes through and payment is due. Everyone needs covering from this, this judgment. And as you read the Bible, you see that this really is a, a preview of a final greater judgment for sins. And that you know, midnight of passing through is this kind of preview of what it's like to, to have spend eternity apart from God. If God is the source of all life and all that is good and right and whole, then apart from him would be what we call hell. We said it a minute ago. Jesus descended into hell. That really is that judgment. And so the story kind of ultimately is saying you can't be with God the way you are. Like if you're just hanging out outside your house when he passes through, you're going to be consumed. You need a substitute and again I always rush past this story and I thought God gets the bad guys uh, and my sons see the world through the lens of good guys and bad guys they ask me that all the time daddy is he a bad guy which leads to a really good conversation you know but here it's kind of like okay everybody is a bad guy according to something and so it's a really heavy text I get it it's a sobering text probably not what you expect from a substitute preacher I should have picked something lighter like love your enemies or something but I chose this But nobody's exempt. And so I do want to say, though, if you react kind of, you back up from this and you're just not so sure. And you're like, man, this seems like too much. Maybe step back and ask yourself this question. This is a question I had to ask myself, too, as I thought the same thing. I had the same reaction. I must not realize how pure and holy God is and what his demands are and or how sinful I am, like how far the gap is between those two things. If this seems like too much, there must, I, I must not understand that dynamic to a certain degree. Like how holy God is, and yet how far short I fall from that. And I think we react to that whole explanation of this story with two objections, that everyone would deserve this. And the first one I would think we react to is there's something inside us that says, I'm a pretty good guy. And I bet you guys are. Like, I'd love to go to lunch with every one of you. You're probably pretty, pretty good people as we so often, you know, maybe evaluate people. I'm not that bad. But, of course, that depends on what you're measuring yourself by. Like, to my sons, I'm the strongest man in the world. And I'm going to let them keep believing that. The reality is, at the gym, I'm just another guy. Kind of a nobody walking around. So the question is, as you evaluate, am I a good person, I don't deserve this, whatever, what's your moral standard? Uh, one pastor in the past, Francis Schaefer, he, he said, imagine, uh, walking around with an invisible tape recorder around your neck all your life. And the only thing that thing picked up on was what you held other people to. That's all. And then, so, and then on judgment day, you would be evaluated according to, to that. It would be played back to you. And that would be the standard that you yourself were held to question. Would you pass your own standards? No hands, wise people, right? I I don't think I would pass my own standards for other people, much less God's. Think about like God's standards. Let's just go with the Ten Commandments, like ballpark. You kind of heard them, maybe. Don't lie, commit adultery, steal, kill, murder, so on. And you say, "Ah, I pass, you know, most of those with flying colors. But then, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus says that's, this is really about your heart, right? If you hate someone in your heart, you're, you're, you know, you're stepping over that boundary, you're committing murder. Essentially, in your heart. If you, if you lust, you've committed adultery. So the standard, God's standard, is perfection all the way down to our motives. Not even to get in things, to things like gossip and envy and greed and anger and pride. Like, so, so, you know, Psalm 24, the psalmist asks this, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Can anybody say, okay, yeah, I qualify you know, according to that. Now, maybe you do. Let's just say you do. You say, I, hey, I've never done any of those. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let's, let's, uh, let's not do the do nots. Don't do this. Don't do that. How about just the do's, right? And Jesus summed up the whole law, all of God's law, into two commandments. He said, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, if you nailed those two things, you'd be covering all the rest. So just those two, have you, have you done those two? Right, I, I think everybody falls short of the do-nots, but also if we summed it up that way. Okay, you might say, okay, I'm guilty. Got me, right, according to that standard. But now you might ask, well then, well, why can't God just forgive? Big deal, okay, I did it. it, got me. But why can't he just sweep it under the rug and move on? Well, first, God is perfectly just, the Bible says. You know, I think we would throw a fit if a local judge let a criminal go and, and, he, and you asked him the reason, why you let him go? You didn't punish him. And he said, well, it's because I'm just a good guy. I'm just a really kind judge. I'm compassionate. You would say, you have one job to carry out, right? Like, literally one job. Like, the definition of you being a good judge is handing out what people deserve. You're not even doing that. So, you're not a good judge because you're not even just. And that's the one thing you're supposed to do. Like, payment is due. It's unloving of you to, like, let this person go. Right, and so in a sense, we want a God of justice. In some ways, that's our greatest hope. If you if you've ever been a part of any sort of like oppressed people group or something like that, that's your greatest hope that God will settle the score and make things right in the long run. We want that. The thing is, we want justice for others, but not ourselves. Right? Why can't God just forgive? Let me ask you: Can you just forgive? Let's just say I had your family over for dinner and one of your kids broke a window in my house. It would probably have been one of my kids that broke my own window, but let's say yours did it, right? And I said, don't worry about it. It's all good. We'll see you later. I can forgive you, but guess what? My window's still broken. Like, there's a debt that's been created, and the reality is either you have to pay for it or I have to pay for it. Either I have to say, hey, man, you're going to have to run to Lowe's and we'll, we'll have a work day Saturday. I'll, I'll, I'll provide the coffee and donuts. Meet me Saturday. We'll fix my window. But you've got to cover the cost, right? Or I can say, no worries. I'll take care of it and i got to fix the window. That's kind of what happens in every time somebody sins against us, right? When people wrong us, we, we make them pay. We we distance ourselves from them. We get angry in our hearts. We gossip about them. We We come up with ways to make them work away the debt that they've accrued by sinning against us, right? Or we don't make them pay, and we just absorb that blow of their sin against us without retaliating. But either way, somebody's got to absorb the debt. And that's what sin creates, this debt. And in Genesis 22, we kind of see that theme tied in with this idea of a lamb. Maybe you've heard the story about how God told Abraham to take his son Isaac up and actually sacrifice his son. And it's interesting that when God told Abraham to do it, he didn't object. He didn't say, well, this is crazy. He, he knew God's, there's a debt to be paid and God's calling it in. And But surely he was conflicted because God had made promises to him that he'd make his family great, he'd have all these descendants, he'd inherit this land, he specifically told him, it'd be through your son Isaac. So, of course, Abraham has to be thinking, how is this going to work? And they're walking up the mountain and Isaac's carrying the wood on his back and he says, Dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, what? God will provide the lamb. But surely he's wondering, okay, I know I deserve justice, but how in the world can God give this justice but show mercy at the same time? Like how can he keep his promise to me and yet still be good, still be hopefully just and yet merciful? And the Bible says that in our sin we've we've racked up just this incalculable debt By sitting against God. And so this story makes us ask, when he comes, the creator, my maker, my judge, right? If he alone was just that, all he did was make me, I still owe my existence and my life to him. When he comes through, how am I going to pay the debt? And I think all of us are figuring out different ways to do that. We're all putting something on the doorposts of our lives saying, pass me over. Right? We're painting something, you're painting something to find your meaning, your significance, your worth, to to prove yourself, right? To justify ourselves, but remember, Israel wasn't passed over just because of their race, or because of their pedigree, or their morality, or that, you know, none of that mattered. It was just the blood. Apart from the blood, they were just as lost. I would just ask you to reflect for just a minute. Like, what, what are you painting on a doorpost? Maybe you remember that story where Jesus said, Hey, on Judgment Day, there's going to be a lot of people who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, look at all these awesome things we did. right? And they kind of list their even religious resume. And he says, the Lord will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Those things are not enough to get passed over. And Israel would go on to repeat these sacrifices year in and year out, over and over, kind of showing there's a deeper a deeper deliverance needed for all of us. And so we find ourselves in the same predicament as Abraham, right? We need a lamb. We need we need a lamb provided to take our place. And from the beginning, the Old Testament whispered of this great hero who would come. From the very beginning. Right after Adam and Eve messed it up and they fell in the garden, there was this promise. This hero would come and and you know, defeat evil and sin and save. And the prophet Isaiah wrote about what this hero would be like. But it's not the type of hero we expect. Like you expect this hero to come on this like awesome horse with a big sword and you know conquer all the bad guys. But uh, in order to understand this type of hero, we have to understand Passover and listen to what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter fifty-three, just a few verses. He was wounded for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes, we are healed. This is what the hero would come to do. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. So he opened not his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to make many to be accounted righteous. Isaiah, over 700 years before Jesus even showed up on the scene, wrote, prophesied of what this great one, this Messiah would come to do. As you hear this story, you might think, like I did, does God realize how devastating the loss of a son is. Right? I've got three sons, and maybe it's because I really dove into the story since I've been a father for the first time and thought about, this is just you know heartbreaking. And the mystery is, he does understand, because that's the gospel. Because God had an only son in Jesus, and he sent him into the world. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's walking into town, there's this guy named John the Baptist, and John the Baptist points at him, and he says, Behold the what? The Lamb of God Who takes away the sin of the world? Like the Lamb of God, that's a that's a heavy, pregnant phrase. What do you think people thought of when they heard him say that? Surely they thought of this story. This is the one who's come to be, you know, to be painted on the doorpost. All those other lambs just pointed to this great substitutionary, true human lamb who could take the our place, right? The one we need. And notice in verse five, notice it said this lamb had to be without blemish had to be perfect and and pure. And I think you guys have been going through 1 Peter. And then in the New Testament, Peter says, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb. What? Without blemish. The same words, this lamb had to be sinless and pure in order to take the sins of others. And Jesus goes to the cross on the Passover weekend. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And that's why the New Testament talks so much about blood. If you're unfamiliar with this story, you might say, what is this all about? Right? But Paul says in Romans 5.9, we've been justified by his blood. First John 1 John 1.7 says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sins. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is that by faith, our sins are put on Jesus. And he wasn't passed over by God's wrath so that we would be. And there God, God, his justice, justice is satisfied. He doesn't just sweep things under the rug. He does carry out justice, but yet he can still give mercy to the undeserving. And in him we find covering under his blood, our debt for our sins paid, deliverance from sin, we're made righteous, we're given life all by grace. And that's the good news. So at first you hear this story and you might say, I don't know if I like this kind of God, but then when you see in the full scope of redemptive history that he took his wrath and he literally lodged it in himself in order to save us, that begins to change our hearts as to who is the Lord that I should obey him. It's not just fear that draws us in. It is love and his grace and his mercy, his sacrifice. If you say, you know, I don't believe in any God of judgment or anything like that, then you really do lower the work of Christ. You lower the work of the gospel because then Jesus isn't really accomplishing a real work. But if he did carry our sins, if it by his wounds we are healed, we see God's great holiness and justice, then therefore we see how much greater his love is. And so the plea of the gospel and even the story is to repent and believe. Like quit clinging to those other things Looking for covering from and get under the blood. Don't trust in anything else, and only in Him can you find that security. See that security in chapter eleven, verse six. The Lord said, "There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel." I love that. No, no condemnation, right? No, no uh, echoes of sin or accusation against you. Completely forgiven. Uh, Pastor uh, D.A. Carson, he gave this illustration. I thought it was great. He said, imagine two Jewish guys on the night of the Passover before it happened, and they're hanging out, and one of them says, man, I'm so scared about what's going to go down tonight. And the other one says, well, I'm not. I mean, I'm I'm trusting in what God told Moses. And, you know, uh, did you put the blood on the door? And the scared guy says, yeah, but things have been crazy. I mean, these last nine plagues have been insane. I'm just not so sure this is all going to work out. You know, I got one son and, you know, this is, this is really scary, but I'm just really nervous. And the other one says, okay, well, I'm, I'm not at all. I'm trusting. And then he asked, which of those guys' sons was dead in the morning? And the answer is neither. Right, if they both had the blood on the doorpost. Because, and his point was that our assurance isn't found in the strength of our faith, but in the object of our faith. Right? Our, our salvation isn't if you're barely holding on to Jesus. It's not your grip on him, it's, it's his grip on you. Right, We're all covered under the blood by faith in Him. And then in chapter 12, verse 14, God told him to keep a great feast, to remember this this act of salvation uh, by Him. And He said, actually, you're going to base your entire calendar off this feast. This is going to become the center of your reality. Year in and year out, I want you to practice this Passover to remember that you you don't create your own coverings. I'm the one, who gives you life, and your covering is by grace alone. And it really did form their identity as they came to that table year in and year out. And on the night before the, before the cross, Jesus met with his disciples and they celebrated the Passover meal, but he changed things up. He presided over that meal and he took the bread and the wine and he said, what? This is about me. This whole story, this lamb, all of this, all of that was always about me. It was my blood's going to be poured out to deliver you. And there will be no more lamb needed, no more blood needed, I'm the final one, and he told us to, to keep that meal. And so in a minute, we're going to come to our, really, our Passover table where we enter into the story, and we remember what God has done for us in giving us a lamb. And we need to remember what's true. It, it, it reorients it re- us to reality. If you're anything like me, because the world is broken and sinful, because I'm broken and sinful, I forget what's true. And so when we come to this table, we remember that God is just. And sin is costly, and I need to substitute. So I come to this table very humbly, and yet at the same time I remember God is love, and He sent His only Son to give His life for me, and so we come and find complete assurance. And maybe this weekend you're filled with condemnation, and you've just forgotten who you are at this table. You remember that you're redeemed, and you've been rescued by grace if your faith is in Christ, and you've been delivered, and you are a child of God. It's interesting, too, the manner in which they're to eat it. If you look in verse 11, he says, In this manner you shall eat this meal with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. It reminded me of when we're on vacation as a family, like when we have breakfast the next morning, I want everybody ready to go. Because right when we get done, we're hitting the road. You better have your shoes on, your backpack on. packed. We're not going back to brush teeth after this, Right? And it's the same thing here. It says, you know, have your sandals on, have your backpacks packed, your staff in your hand, and be ready to leave because I'm coming and right when this happens, we're leaving and we're out of here and I'm delivering you. And so there really is a future orientation to this meal where we eat with a readiness to remember that this isn't our true home. Right? That God has prepared for us a better country. And he says, and tell your kids about this all along the way. Tell the story about how God has loved you and rescued you. And so, as we end, I just ask: Are you trusting in Christ as your Savior? And for some, this is probably an unsettling story. And I so, you know, there's a part of me that wants to rush in and say, "No, don't, don't worry about that." It should, no, I think it should be unsettling. It's a sobering story. It's meant to drive us to Jesus and to, you know, relinquish any other uh, idols that we're clinging to to find our deliverance from. For others, if your faith is in Jesus, maybe you just need to hear this morning: Remember the blood. Your security, your assurance isn't found in what you do, but what he has done for you. And so find rest, right? Look at God's heart for you. In chapter 12, 27, it says, when the Israelites heard that of the lamb that would be provided, they hit their knees and they fell down and worshiped. And that should be the reaction that we have as well. And so let's prepare our hearts. Will you pray with me? Let's behold the lamb uh, that God has given for us. Uh, Father God